Welcome to a special edition of Jews on Film, where we are excited to bring you a guest episode where Harry and I had the opportunity to sit down with the folks from the Deadbeat Film Society, a local Seattle, Washington podcast, where we discussed the film uh, Rain Man. Harry, what'd you think? I, I loved Rain Man and I loved being a guest on a podcast for once. It was nice, A, to sort of not be the ones, you know, running the show, to just kind of sit back, let them dictate how it went. But then something I was really excited about was just getting to watch a movie for once and not have to bring on the Jewish lens, you know, just kind of talk about it yeah. as is, which is which is not to say that I don't love the experiment we do here on Jews on Film. You know, it's, it's great to get back into the groove of things and talk about the Jewishness and pull our stretches out. And I'm really enjoying that too. But for one week, right. it was a nice little break. Did you enjoy that? Absolutely. Yeah, I had a fun time. Thank you to Emily and Kevin for having us on the Deadbeat Film Society. So enjoy this special episode of Deadbeat Film Society featuring us and uh, make sure to check out their podcast, Deadbeat Film Society on Twitter and wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the show. Kmart sucks. Hello and welcome. We are the Deadbeat Film Society. Each episode, we talk about one important film. Today's film is Rain Man from 1988. I am Emily. Oh, hi, I'm Kevin. Welcome, Deadbeats. Let me tell you why Rain Man's important, as if you didn't know. First of all, a ton of Academy Awards. It was nominated for eight Oscars. All the big ones. And it actually won. I feel like uh, we went on a string where like um, movies were nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards that we've been talking about, but then they didn't actually won. This one won. It won Best Picture. And it won Best Director and Best Actor for Tom Cruise. Just kidding. That's not fun. And it also won Best Screenplay. Pretty big deal. Uh, Along with that, it made 355 million on a budget of 25 million. It was the highest grossing film of 1988, which is you know, not insignificant. Although I did want to look this up. We just recently talked about Black Swan and I feel like Black Swan made the same amount of money. It made 329 million and this movie made 355 million. And I get it. I get it. It was eighties to now, but if you think about the fact that like, you know, maybe more people are going to movies. I don't know. I just think it's really fantastic that Black Swan made that much money. And uh, maybe the the numbers sometimes get lost in the shuffle. But this movie was the highest grossing film in 1988. Uh, along with that, it stars a very young Tom Cruise. I think he's like 26 or something in this movie. Tom Cruise looking like a straight up baby in this movie. And I was really happy about it. Um, also, Dustin Hoffman, very famously playing the autistic savant character. Uh, he won the Academy Award for this performance. Um, what else? It was got a score by Hans Zimmer. I think this was like his first kind of solo score. It's pretty interesting. He goes on to become like super famous. He did a bunch of stuff with Disney. I think maybe most famously or the one that launched him was The Lion King. And then he does like Pirates of the Caribbean and also all the like Inception and all those kinds of movies um, with What's-His-Face. So he's a pretty big deal um, in sort of modern uh composing whatever movie scores uh hans zimmer uh and then lastly it has an 89 percent on rotten tomatoes which i think is interesting my favorite movies are usually in the 80s and i think they're kind of the best um if, if a movie's like in the high 90s i always get a little dubious that it's actually good um but uh 89 pretty good 
let's talk about it. Rain Man, it's super famous. You know about it. Um, here today to talk about us is um, the hosts of the fantastic Jews on Film podcast. We have Daniel and Harry. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you guys for coming on and for picking Rain Man. I actually enjoyed watching this movie. Emily, did you as well? I did. Yeah, I feel like we went through a big run of tough to watch movies and it feels like a really nice palate cleanser to be able to enjoy like a, you know, just like a, I don't know, average American comedy drama. Um, so first, thank you for that. Uh, why'd you guys pick it? I sent you a big mm. list and I think I sent you a list and I don't know, you guys were just like immediately like Rain Man's the one. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, our podcast, you know, Jews on Film, we talk about films that may or may not have like explicit Jewish content or not so explicit Jewish content. And we picked like we've done. a. We previously did another Barry Levinson movie that just came out called The Survivor about like a, a Holocaust survivor who flashes back and is boxing other Jews. And anyway, so that was another Barry Levinson film we did. Um, also, like Dustin Hoffman is, you know, great actor, also a Jew. So uh, that one stuck out to me. I don't know. What about you, Harry? I mean, for me, I, I had actually never seen Rain Man and uh, was oh, kind of really? excited to have an excuse to see it and just enjoy it. And, and I'll say at the top, it was a lot. It was very different than I expected. And I enjoyed it in ways that I didn't expect to enjoy it. You know, kind of what I had thought it was from, sure. you know, just its presence in pop culture, I guess, until I had actually seen it. Yes, that is super interesting to me. I feel like Rain Man, that sort of like character that he does gets parodied a ton, referenced yes. a ton. It like on the Wikipedia page, it's like references at the bottom. And there's like this huge list of movies that are that sort of like reference Rain Man. I feel like even just like the name Rain Man kind of went into popular culture as sort of a, a term you would use for somebody who has like special math powers or memory right. powers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, also, so, like, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's worth pointing out like the, the late 80s and 90s had like a very different attitude towards mental health. Oh, I feel yeah. like, you know, uh, the words that, you know, Tom Cruise calling his brother the R word, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, just in general, like awareness of autism was not as prevalent as it was, or it's not as, pre- it wasn't as prevalent back then. So, so to have this film kind of be the sort of autism film and to have it star such huge actors, I feel like is, you know, it's a pretty big deal. Oh, absolutely. Regard. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. for sure. And I think, um, you know, we can kind of dive into like the story and the content and stuff, but I think the general consensus is that they did a pretty good job, which is like not the case at all for 80s and 90s movies. No. Um, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're pretty cringy. We've gone back and watched a few that are, are really tough. Um, but I think it's super interesting, the idea of like these huge movies that are so ubiquitous in American pop culture and be like, you know, somehow not seeing them and to kind of come into it uh, is super interesting to me. I think that's happened to Emily a few times. She Oh, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we started doing this, I hadn't seen any of the like important big movies. So. I mean, it's so, kind of nice to come into it sort of. Yeah. With a little bit of hype, but like, I also, I feel like maybe I saw this as a kid, but yeah, it's been a while. And like, certainly as an adult, I have a greater appreciation for it. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting because some of them, like The Godfather, I'd seen that character so many times that I was like, okay, I didn't really need to watch this. But (laughs) some of them, like Rocky, I assumed I would hate it and I really liked it. And this was one where I thought it was going to be more Forrest Gumpy, where you're Mm -hmm. like, okay. But it was actually very good and heartfelt and well done and more balanced. So that surprised me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree with your comparison to Forrest Gump, where yeah. you're saying that it's not the same because no. I definitely I expected it to be much more sort of like sweet and saccharine. And like I was waiting for the Tom Cruise character to just sort of learn his lesson and yeah. kind of like soften up. And that really doesn't happen until the very, very end of the movie. And yeah. you could even debatably say that it, he doesn't fully come around by no. the end. You know, he doesn't learn his lesson in that traditional <laughs> way. And that, yeah. that's really what surprised me about it. And it definitely ends sort of open-ended where he like puts him back in the train. And he's like, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. But you're like, maybe he does, or maybe he just Willing? goes back to cocaine yeah. and selling. Yeah. Car. He's on the black. Maybe he'll visit him whatever. once. And then, you know, who knows yeah. how often he's going to come back yeah. after that. Yeah. Uh, um, but I, ah, I think that's really interesting. I think that's true. Like there is, it's weird because this is sort of the tail end of the eighties where they start really laying on the saccharine nineties, where it's just like every single movie has to have this like big sort of, bow tied up on it and you have to they, they're going to tell you exactly how you're supposed to feel about this movie and i blame a lot of that on steven spielberg who kind of like sort of i don't want to say invented it but really um made it a cash cow and so everybody started kind of copying that that model of um nostalgia and sort of like sentimentality that we really get through 90s movies and so if it had maybe come out you know five years later it would have been really kind of a lot maybe like a less important of a film um or at least less well done i do i also think it's interesting <clears throat> about um dan you were mentioning kind of the, the the portrayal of autism on on screen is maybe this kind of like i feel like this is kind of maybe the first or at least the first certainly the first the biggest mm -hmm. um and then after this you get this big wave like to the point where it was almost a parody of major actors going for characters with disabilities and to sure. a certain extent you can say like hey this is super interesting because we're starting to finally get the diversity of like the human spectrum shown on film to, you know we talked about coda winning um yeah here on this podcast we talked about coda you know about a deaf family um and and the idea about getting these stories out there to give awareness to people because i think like for better or for worse most people uh like the way that we understand or even learn, especially in modern times, is through media. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, movies are can be a really, really great teaching tool. I mean, if this is your experience and you want to be able to, you know, like the deaf experience, you can learn so much about um, the deaf community and, you know, what it means to be deaf from CODA. However, like, you know, the, with that, there's a lot of problematic things that can happen because, you know, in the wrong hands, they, they can put the wrong information out there. And then you've just sort of solidified who they are. And I think that this film kind of went both ways from what mm -hmm. I could research. Like most people were really, really happy with the fact that like, finally autism is, uh, is out in the public lexicon. People are actually saying the word autistic before, you know, like you were saying, they would use a hard R word. Um, and that I actually looked this up that, um, uh, charitable donations to medical research and autism awareness, like went up tenfold after this movie came mm -hmm. out, that people were really becoming aware of it. Um, However, on the other side of things, it kind of like blended because he's like an autistic and a savant. And so mm -hmm. everyone's just like, Oh, you're autistic. You must be good at math. Right. It kind of like blended those two together and it made people sort of feel like uh, there, there's sort of like this magicalness to it. Um, that's sort of like, Hey, if you're autistic, you've got this like power that you just need to like unlock and, and you can like wow people and win friends and relationships through this, um, where it, you know, to a certain extent, um, I actually had to look up the statistics. I was interested in this 37% of autistics are savant. So, I mean, that's pretty small. That's, oh, that's higher than I would have guessed. Yeah. 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 But still, I mean, you know, 
yeah. of the autistics that you're going to encounter in life, only 30% of them are, are going to be savants. Yeah. It kind of makes it more difficult um, when you sort of assume that like, oh, you just need to unlock your superpower and then right. you'll be normal again. Yeah, totally. I think a lot of the modern, we've seen a wave of media in the last, I don't know, like five years um, that has really featured like a range of stories of uh, autism. And I think that more recently hasn't specifically focused on the savant. And so maybe that's where I'm thinking Yeah, that assumption comes from, but it, it seems, I, I don't know anyone. Um, do we still say autism spectrum? Yeah. You say like on the spectrum, okay. I think probably. sometimes I think, I don't know. I, I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't have any personal relationships with anybody um, on the autism spectrum. And I will find out if that is um, the currently preferred sure. terminology. I should have looked that up, but um it seems like it's a range, like spectrum feels appropriate because sure. each person's individual experience seems very varied. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I really had an understanding of that until very recently. Yeah. Sure. I wanted to point out that the the writer or, or sorry, the, the person. So the screenplay was written by, you know, according to Wikipedia, Barry Morrow and Ronald Bass. And then so Barry Morrow, like. Uh, he was inspired by two sort of well-known savant mm -hmm. characters of the time. Uh, one was called Bill Sactor and the other one was called Kim Peek. And Kim Peek was one of these savant type uh, folks who who could literally read a book in an hour. And with one eye, with his left eye could read the left side of the page. And with his right eye could read the right side of the page. And he could do amazing things like that, which is what you were talking about, Kevin, with this sort of like magical ability. But in the other hand, there were other tasks such as like tying his shoes or something like that, that mm -hmm. were where he was not able to do. And I feel like they sort of portrayed that with um, Raymond, you know, where he's like, you know, not sure how to pay for things. And, you know, when the when the doctor is asking him these sort of basic questions, he's able to calculate all these numbers. But then, you know, you know, how many he asked him some question about like, you know, making change or how much does yeah. something cost? And he's just like, it's everything's a hundred dollars. It's yeah. like Lucille Bluth where he's like, how much does a banana cost? And he's like a hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. Definitely a hundred dollars. <laughs> I want to, I want to jump in on what you were saying, Kevin, the comparison you were making to Coda. Cause I think that that's actually a really interesting one because, you know, Coda is a film about a deaf family and the way that that was cast, it was cast with deaf actors. And you kind of imagine if they were doing Rain Man today, they probably wouldn't have cast it with, you know, Dustin Hoffman, someone who's not right. on the autistic spectrum. And it just, it's such an interesting lens because on one hand, it's like, you know, he's, you know, I know that's a big issue, you know, casting people that are not necessarily in the same disability that's being represented. But I don't think that necessarily means that that performance was necessarily a harm, like a, mm -hmm. a harmful one. You know, I think you were talking about how it raised a lot of awareness and how it was actually, you know, it, it was a good representation of this person. And I do think that if you sort of watch the movie, like part of what I was expecting in the sort of saccharine mold of what I expected was, was that he would all of a sudden become, you know, he'd be willing to hug his brother and he would you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of turn yeah. around and and even through that last scene, when he's getting on the train, you know, he doesn't give the sweet goodbye to, you know, his brother, Charlie, he just kind of, he Walks goes off. about the world the way yeah. he always yeah. did. And, mm -hmm. and I think that touch just made it feel much more grounded. And like, it wasn't trying to tidy up, you know, the story of, of someone suffering from autism, but it really was just, you know, it, it, as far as I could tell, it was a very fair representation, you know, even though Dustin Hoffman wasn't yeah. himself. An autistic I thought guy. about this a lot, actually, because most of the films from this time period and even now, it is an issue of representation where we're like, well, why don't you get a gay actor? Why don't you get an Asian American actor or all of the different um, types of people? It's just like we're not casting the appropriate people. But 
I was thinking about this and maybe it's because they specifically um, explain that he like doesn't understand money and that his like interactions um, are like more internalized. I was thinking like, if you were to cast somebody specifically like a savant, would they be in a position to understand acting or would it be exploitative? And that's what I couldn't like, not to, mm. so, to assume that he's like a child, but I recently sure. was watching a show where there was a child actor who didn't understand like what acting was and expected the um, person to be uh, I was watching uh, the rehearsal. Yeah, yeah the rehearsal. Love that I watched show. that okay. last night and the kid doesn't have a dad and thinks that he's his dad. And it's uh, like, cause he doesn't have a concept of what acting is. He's too mm -hmm. young. Okay. And so I was, because I happened to see that, I was thinking about that while I was watching this, like, would an actor, obviously it's a spectrum. And so there could be people that um, have autism that could play this role, but like at this specific um, presentation of autism, mm -hmm. would they be able to act in a way where it would be like, I don't know, not an exploitation thing. Mm, that's yeah. super interesting. And so I, I can't wanna, stop thinking about it. I don't want to like tip my recommendation. So maybe I'll burn <laughs> okay. it and I'll use a different recommendation. <laughs> but like there's a show on Amazon Prime uh, called As We See It. And it's mm. all about like folks who have autism. And and I think the 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 three different characters in the show, like they live in a group home and things like that. And they're all on the spectrum in real life. And I think, you know, obviously their portrayals are a little bit heightened for, you know, for mm -hmm. dramatic effect and things like that, but they all vary in terms of like how, because it's like you said, it's on the spectrum. So, you know, one person is, uh, you know, unable to like even go outside because of sound things and it's yeah. too much for them. And the other person can't read social, you know, and social cues and is just very flat with their affect and things like that. So I think it does kind of range, but I, I, I would recommend that, uh, you know, uh, again, sorry to burn my recommendation. No, early. I mean, it's it's okay. you know, very I thought it was relevant to the discussion because I yeah. it was I, it was a really like cool introduction to to that world, and and I had I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think you're right. I think along with that, sort of like the main characteristics I understand it with autism is, uh, like you mentioned, they have uh, you know extreme sensitivity to like sensory stimuli, a lot of s's, um, just like they become very overloaded by loud. So I imagine on a set with a lot of lights, a lot of people, yeah. a lot of sound constant stopping starting is going to you know set off those triggers and then on top of that just like um sort of like difficulty in social situations i think a lot of one of the one of the great examples that i saw when i was researching actually i was researching that kim peak guy um was like they can understand the sort of like human base emotions like happy and sad and so they experience happiness and joy and they experience sadness um the things that they don't necessarily um understand or perceive well is when it's based around like social interaction. So things like pride or embarrassment, they don't get because it's related to social cues. It's not sort mm -hmm. of innate, if that makes sense. And so a lot of that stuff might be really difficult to act, although it's not my place to say, like you said, it's spectrum. Maybe they could have yeah. found it. I think the difficulty is just like, would the performance be better and or the same? I mean, he won an Oscar for it. So let's say it's mm -hmm. a great performance. Or would it just make us feel better about this? And I think right. like, it's a good question. Extent, is it, uh, would, um, you know, along with that, would it, would it heighten sort of um, the community and like make it better or, um, you know, and, and in hand with that, is this movie and this performance by Dustin Hoffman making it worse? And I think like the evidence here having, you know, given the last, whatever it is, 25, 30 years 
is clearly um, that, you know, it overall, it did well for the community. Um, it brought a lot of awareness and a lot of, a lot of helpful assets and, you know, in the way to money. Yeah. Um, but, but a lot of communities like we've talked about in the past, um, especially like racial minorities have a really hard time getting work, can do the work yeah. and yet continuously get overcasted by like white people. Uh, yeah. It's also interesting. I mean, like you can't act Asian American. Yeah. But uh, Mick, Mickey Rooney and <laughs> Breakfast <yeah>. at Tiffany's. <laughs> <laughs> but in this, yeah. I mean, it's like, I guess this is kind of a classic example of like what really good acting is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anyone's going to do it, Stefan Hoffman, he's a method actor. Yeah. He obsessively followed around. He actually when found this compete guy and spent time right. with him obsessively like monitoring he read a bunch of stuff with him and this compete guy was super fascinating i was reading about him quite a bit he actually like was pretty high functioning and after this he started getting calls for a lot of um like appearances and um to kind of do like some special speaking engagements i would assume like a lot of like autism awareness kind of bloomed after this and so he kind of became a spokesperson and uh the screenwriter Barry Morrow gave him the oscar that he won for it. And so it kind of became this famous Oscar that Kim Peek would carry around with him. And whenever he would do these sort of appearances, everyone, and it, and it created a lot of joy. And so you got to imagine that like this movie overwhelmingly creates all this connection for a community that, you know, maybe wouldn't even have seen the light of day for who knows how long, um, you know, would have still been kind of under a, a, under an umbrella of just like disabled quote unquote. Right. Um, so kind of super interesting. And, and again, Dustin Hoffman, like I said, sort of clearly a great actor. We've talked about him in the past. Uh, we covered uh, Tootsie, which we didn't like so much. And Graduate, which we did like. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but, but certainly, I mean, he's been nominated for Academy Awards in the past. Um, and he's, he's clearly one of the great American actors. And like I mentioned, he's a method actor. So he kind of goes in deep and becomes yeah. that character. So We had one guest in that. It's we not have like Sean one... Penn, right? And and I am Sam or some of these oh, other right, 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 right. made attempts that. after the fact. I mean, you mentioned Tom Hanks. We talked a lot about whether or not Tom Hanks is really doing disservice. Um, you know, I think the general consensus is yes. <laughs> um, but <laughs> right. Yeah. It is interesting. I yeah. almost like it almost like parodied itself in like Tropic Thunder. Do you remember that scene yeah. where Oh yeah, absolutely. Where, yeah. Where yeah. Ben Stiller go, yeah. <laughs> Full R. Yeah. yeah. It's just like I think I think, yeah, they they sort of picked up on that trend that like these prestige actors are trying to do these like sort of uh, you know, outshine Rain Man. But I think, you know, this was a, a nice I felt like it was a nice portrayal, very sympathetic portrayal of of someone what it's like to live with like mental illness or not, yeah. you know, to be on, sorry. Yeah. So, you know, what it's like to, to live with, you know, someone who's on the spectrum and how that sure. impacts that person and the caregivers. And yeah, totally. I, yeah. I do think that part of the, the story was super interesting because, you know, to a certain extent, like, who is which one is he? Raymond Raymond, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character. He's not really like, super affected like he's just kind of going about his life the way yeah. he this is really like tom cruise's story and so you mentioned the caregivers i feel like to me this is a caregiver movie and about how it's not just raising awareness about autism and what autism might actually be like but a lot of it is like mm -hmm. then the storyline is like how much work and how much need these people require um, in order to just sort of like function and be comfortable, I guess I should say. Um, and that because of sort of like their quote unquote special needs that, you know, a lot of the, like I mentioned, the sensory stimuli, um, their routines, their habits and things like that, they, 
the, the caregiving is very specialized. And I think that is sort of the story of this movie is like whether or not Tom Cruise and, you know, we can put a, a Tom Cruise as a cipher, whether or not any of us could be the ones to like take care of someone like yeah. this and, and maybe like double down on sort of like the effort and appreciation for the people that do take their time to take care of people. Um, I thought it was interesting too. Uh, part of Tom Cruise's argument for why he should have custody over his brother is that he's like, he's capable. He can do things that he yeah. like never had a chance to do and he could. And I mean, it's arguable whether his like negative experience with the smoke alarm mm-hmm. is more damaging than his positive experience learning how to dance. Who, I mean, who can say, right. but like, I thought that that was really interesting to have this, like, I think in my super positive um, ending, open ending, his brother goes to visit him frequently and like takes him out. And he has this like new, slightly more exploratory part of his life where he gets to like have some new experiences that are within, you know, what's safe for him. And I thought that was really interesting that it it, it is like he cannot live with his brother. But if you if he tries new things, he's pretty successful at them. Sure. Right. Yeah. Given the opportunity, he could mm-hmm. do more. And I yeah. think this is where I think about this sometimes. Um, uh, the idea that like, this is our interpretation of what like a better life is, right? That mm-hmm. like, you know, Raymond just sitting in the home every single day watching Wapner and like eating the same food to us is an unhappy life. And so, you know, and, to, and obviously within the movie to Tom Cruise, it's an unhappy life. And so that he needs to get out and he needs to experience life. He needs to dance in an elevator. He needs to go across country. He needs to do all of these wonderful experiences and, and experience what life has to offer in order to really live a full and rich life. But like, is that true? Or is that just us saying like, this is what is required in order to enjoy your life because, and again, I think that's kind of an American thing that like, if you just spend all day watching TV that you're somehow like not living a worthy life, right? That know, you, that's my you're life supposed goal. to be working and like when <laughs> right. you go on vacation, yeah. you're supposed to also be doing things. Um, you know, I, I think that's a big part of Dustin Hoffman's performance. Like I really don't think he ever lets on, you know, if this really positively impacted him. And by the end of it, you don't get the sense. Like, I think there's that moment where he kind of, learns that the whole the the routine he's been doing the who's on first is like a joke and he kind of you have that scene at the diner where he says like oh you know charlie made a joke and (laughs) kind of get a little bit of a perspective shift but again the reason i love that last scene so much is that you know we we just don't know like like the the exact question you're asking you know is this really a better life for him was he happier Does, does he need these life experiences like the the movie makes a point to say we don't actually have you know such a strong window into his you know, life and into his perspective on all this. And that's why I think if they had, if Tom Cruise had won, you know, if Charlie Babbitt had won custody and kind of said, I'm taking this guy, like that's not the happy ending to me because I don't Mm, like, we've seen the recklessness of that. We've seen all the negative things that can come out of that, but has the movie really made a case for just how positive and how transformative it is? Like, yeah. I don't really think it so, almost seems you. like it would be positive for Tom Cruise. That he, right. He's yeah. clearly become oh, a better person. Sure. I 100 percent agree with you yes. that yes. this movie is about Tom Cruise's Charlie's character, his growth and his learning exactly. what that means to take care of himself, take care of someone else and, you know, have a family and come to terms with a family that he hated and felt alienated from. And it's all his change. And, you know, as much like Dustin Hoffman, you know, he won the Oscar for it. It's an incredible performance. But, you know, and 
partly because this is the role, it, it's very one note. You know, he's playing the exact same note the entire time. Yeah. And yeah. he's literally yeah. saying the same yeah. things over and over again. I mean, literally, yeah. Like <laughs> there's not the one who's doing the traditional sort of journey of, and growth. Yeah, like that, sure. that's all Tom Cruise's character. I think it's like a measured difference, right? Tom Cruise has like the biggest swing from being like super self-involved and only thinking about himself and his Lamborghinis and not even like caring about his girlfriend or whatever. But then by the end, he, you know, you could argue that he does care about Raymond a little bit. I think Dustin Hoffman like makes a change from like here to here. It's not such a huge yeah. difference, but I think for him in, in this film, in this world, I think, like you said, Harry, the, the jokes that he's making and the sort of, you know, the learning to dance, the kissing people. And, you know, I, I think it, it's a big change for him in his world hmm. where he's used to like, you know, watching Wapner and having Jello every night and that kind of thing. So I think the pivotal scene too is when the doctor is sort of grilling or interrogating him to decide, like, do you want to stay with your brother Charlie or do you want to go back to the home? And he just says, yeah, 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 yeah. to every question. He's like, do you want right. to go with Charlie? Yeah, yeah. Are you sure you want to go with Charlie? Yeah. Do you want to go back to the home? Yeah. It's like, I think clearly, you know, this is the big emotional crux of the film. And we're supposed to feel really like this soaring relief, like, oh, he wants to stay with his brother. And then we realize like, oh, he's not capable of making a decision. And that but to me, it's like, you know, you're supposed to feel like, oh man, I feel bad for Charlie that he's not going to be able to get to his brother. But at the same time, kind of with what you guys are talking about, he, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character never lets on whether he even really wants to go back to the home because he's, right. he's, he's, it's not like he desperately is can't wait to get back to the home. He's sort of saying yes to both things. He doesn't have that awareness. I think, you know, he, he has, he now has these memories. Clearly he mentions the memories of his father a lot. He's constantly talking about how his dad would come and visit him and he would drive in the car and drive around the driveway. Um, and so you got to imagine that now he's going to be repeating to everybody the adventure that he had with Charlie. Um, and so it's clear that like these types of memories and a connection with a family has been really important to him. He's very aware that Charlie is his brother. I mean, he's telling mm -hmm. him stories about his past and stuff. So, oh, yeah. you know, you would imagine that Overall, it's a positive experience, but I do think it is interesting kind of the type what you guys were both saying is that like these experiences are almost kind of both, both the same. Yeah. Yeah. To both. And that, right. you know, he isn't super excited about one or the other. Uh, yeah. It's like he takes two steps forward, you know, in his progression, mm. uh, Raymond does. And then every time we see some sort of growth, whether it's dancing or whatnot, you do have a scene where someone checks in with him and you, you do realize that like, oh, wait. As much as we feel like we're making progress, he still doesn't know, you know, about smoke alarms or about. Oh, that's a good know, point. I think that might be the 90s thing. That's the thing that they're missing. So, mm -hmm. you know, you've got the dancing in the elevator thing, but he does get the one step back where once he goes back to the to the hotel, things kind of like revert back to him a little right. bit. And I think in the 90s, they wouldn't have that pull back. You would just continuously progress, you know, as you went forward. I, I think the same is true for Charlie's character. You know, you talked about the uh, the scene with the lawyer and that that's really my favorite scene. And I only learned afterwards that the lawyer is played by Barry Levinson, which uh, I, oh, nice. I had no idea about. I, I just heard about that in like a different podcast. And what I just think is so great about that scene is that even the way you're talking about, you know, the Raymond and that he's sort of taking a step back when you think he's grown. I mean, that's exactly what we're seeing with Charlie. We've gotten to this point where it's like Charlie's going to like fight for Raymond. He's going to win the case. He's going to become this, you know, great guardian. And all of a sudden in that scene, like I was very much sympathetic to the lawyer in that scene because he's like, like, I'm not trying to antagonize you. You know, I'm just trying to ask you questions. Stop being right. so defensive. But you see it. Charlie's like getting very defensive and very protective. And it's, it's very clear that as much as he's grown, so to speak, he's not 
yet ready to take care of this person. He still has his sort of selfish tendencies. I'm sure he still is thinking about the money and what that would mean to get you know, ownership. And he's not really thinking about Raymond as a person and what's best for him, because the same way all of us were able to read, you know, maybe what's best for Raymond is to live in a, in a place where he has, you know, routine and schedule. Like Charlie is just so blind to that because he just feels like I finally have a brother. It, it's still, it's, it's a better selfish pursuit. You know, it's not just for the sure, money, sure. but it still is a selfish pursuit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I need my brother. I want to have the family I always wanted. And I just love that. That's like the climactic scene. Cause it really is this, like, let's take a step back. Like you think he's come this long way and he has, but it's not so simple. The answer isn't just put him into Charlie's custody because that's you know not going to end well. Yeah, it's like we're not we're not done with Charlie. He you know typically at the end of a film it's like they've had this big growth and now they're on the other side. He's still he's still growing quite a bit. Like, no question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think um, I'm going to throw this out there. Uh, clearly, Dustin Hoffman's performance is you know amazing. He wins the Oscar for it's a big deal. But I personally think Tom Cruise's performance is really fantastic here, and is probably the harder role. Like mm. you mentioned, it's kind of a one note. Dustin Hoffman, like he just has to kind of say the same thing, and it's he's doing a great job. It's very not every actor can do that, but at the end of the day, he's sort of just doing doing the Rain Man character. Tom Cruise has has at the beginning, he's like so obnoxious. Like, yeah. I cannot Ugh. stand this guy. And the especially when he's dealing with the Ugh. lawyer and he's just like, you know, angry about the money. And throughout the whole first half of the film, he's just like constantly annoyed, constantly shouting. He's just like the biggest, most annoying yuppie on planet Earth. Um, and then to, you mentioned like he kind of comes around and becomes really sympathetic. I would I would argue that like by the time they get to the casino and their card counting you're like oh this feels kind of icky but then like it really really seamlessly morphs into this amazing touching moments oh and i think that is sort of the change where we start to see charlie as this really sympathetic character and that's really hard to do yeah, I mean, like the, the the whole idea of like the the beds, right? Like, so uh, Raymond, you know, really needs to have his bed right by the window because that's how he has it set up in his mm-hmm. in his room at home. And so when he's taken away, they like in the first hotel they stay by, like he pushes it over begrudgingly and he doesn't, you know. But by the time they get to the casino, like you're saying, he's already like set it up beforehand and like he's put some yeah. thought into it. And it's like those little things. It's like a nice touch that he's thinking about someone other than himself. And I thought that was like pretty touching for a douchebag like charlie yeah to do something like that who's like so self-involved to then like think about his brother um in that kind of way yeah you see a lot of it in his interaction with his girlfriend too i think like typically she would have been a throwaway character but i think she's really pivotal to like his arc because in the beginning he's just so dismissive of her it's so fantastic the way they set this up where like He's got this big business deal going on. I don't even, I don't, what's his business? He's like trying He's selling to like smuggle cars. Lamborghinis he, into the country. Yeah, he or imports something. carbs, but they're like on the gray market. So they're like maybe, maybe like questionably uh, uh, acquired. Yeah, yeah. It's super weird. But, anyways, he's, he's doing this big deal and he's like, they're, they're supposed to go on vacation and they're driving the car and she's like, why won't you talk to me? It's been like two hours. And you haven't said anything. So he's very clearly set up as this guy who like doesn't care about anyone else. And it's like, you know, really obviously set up that like now he's going to have to start caring about people. But the girlfriend character is super interesting and really, really helps um, sort of like illustrate uh, Charlie's journey. Because you could imagine that like if she wasn't in this, it's really just Charlie and Raymond together and sort of his 
turn of character in his dealings with Raymond. But when you add in the girlfriend character, it's like his truly his character is starting to change because at the beginning of the movie, he's so obnoxious and despicable that she ends up leaving. She's like, what you're doing is weird and exploitative. And like, I can't believe that you're, you're, you're doing this and you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And he's trying to use all the schmaltzy lines on her that he's using on everyone else. And it's not mm-hmm. working. So she ends up leaving. By the end of the movie, when she comes back, it's very clear that things have changed and he, his interactions with her are so much better. Like he really is um, starting to move into a territory where he is actually starting to be aware of other people, care about them and, um, you know, actively try to make them happy. Yeah. Maybe that's why this is so much more successful than the later films that try to tell the same story, because we can see Charlie's growth in his relationship with his girlfriend because of his relationship with his brother and Mm -hmm. his relationship with his brother doesn't need to be like the ending and the girlfriend character, because that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. And that's where we would feel like super cheese balls. But because the girlfriend is there, it's like, that's how we're able to see a realistic amount of human growth. And it's almost like the brother is able to make that happen, but we don't see a change in the relationship with the brother because that would probably never happen in real life. Yeah. Yeah. I like so Susanna. Uh, I, I like that she's sort of. I, I mean, I, the, the Ital- her, her being Italian kind of like adds an extra mm-hmm. an extra layer to it of just like she doesn't take shit from people and she certainly doesn't take shit from Charles. Oh yeah. I mean, I just like love that she gives it to him where it is like, Charlie's like this alpha dude and, and she kind of like puts him in his place initially. Like you said, at the beginning, she's kind of, you know, when we're first introduced to her, you think she's just like the secretary, but then he's like, all right, we're going to Palm Springs. And then she's like giving him a hard time in the car. Like, can you talk to me? Like what's going on? Why aren't you saying anything? Uh, and then later on, you know, she's very supportive of Raymond, but she, she does sort of stick up for Raymond and, and sort of push Charlie a bit, which I feel like, you know, she's almost more than just arm candy, which is like you were saying, Emily, how like sometimes the, the female, you know, co-star of, of someone like this, you know, may just, Oh, you know, I'll be the caregiver. I'll take, she is a caregiver, but she's also someone who advocate for him. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I really thought that was kind of refreshing. She really seems like a fully fledged character with real personality. I mean, I wouldn't like, you know, even where she can't, she can't seem to really like push Tom Cruise. It seems to me like her character clearly doesn't have the ability to push Tom Cruise towards the person that he needs to be, let's say, Mm -hmm. but she's able to see through his shit right away. And she calls him out on it constantly. And I think that that is an important aspect of a character that we don't see very often. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she's able to see him for who he truly is in the beginning. And so by the end, when she appears, we know she has this ability to see through who he actually is. And so she knows that he's being genuine. And so she sort of is like this, I don't know, Rosetta Stone for the audience that like, oh, okay, if she believes him, then we believe him. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I also think that to your point, Daniel, that his uh, or her role usually in a lesser film is like the caregiver, but in a way that is equated with self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I can totally fix you. I'll just make the relationship better. Oh, I'll fix your relationship with your brother. And that's not what she does at all. She's like, this is bullshit. I'm not doing it. And she leaves. And she also shows Charlie, like your brother's a human being and there's value that you can find in your relationship with him. It might not be what you had expected, but he is 
valuable as a human. And here's the way that I find value in him and have an experience with him. Like we have something just between us, like, because we can have a human relationship. And she teaches him that. And it has nothing to do with her, like sacrificing herself or trying to solve everything, which is really wonderful because we do not see a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, she's she's super warm. Go ahead. Yeah. I I was going to say, I think that's like such a necessary component to his growth because, you know, Tom Cruise's character kind of that, that growth starts to happen when he starts to see him as a person, when, you know, the sort of, we were talking about the sort of mathematical prowess sort of comes out when he Mm -hmm. drops the, you know, when the woman drops the toothpicks and he says, you know, 246 and kind of counts them immediately. And like, you get this sort of spark of, what can I do with this mathematical genius? And obviously that translates to the iconic, you know, Vegas sequence because it's, you know, how can I win big with this guy? How can I teach him how to count cards? But I think the emotional component of that, you know, beyond just this guy's a capable person, but also he's, you know, a sensitive person and should be treated sensitively. You know, it's, it's obviously born out of, you know, the sequences where they talk about their past. And when Charlie discovers that, you know, he was the rain man that used to sing to him. But yeah. I think it's also like completely born out of that relationship that he has with, you know, Susanna, because like you were saying, like she shows him that, you know, this person is also an emotional, sensitive person that should be cared for, you know, and not, I mean, borderline abused, like it just kind of the way that Charlie treats him in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how do you guys feel about Tom Cruise? Are we Tom Cruise fans? I guess 80s Tom Cruise is very distinct from like 2000s Tom's Cruise because this is like peak Cruise. I think he's he's coming off Top Gun, Cocktail. Right. Like mm-hmm. he is on a, a, a like straight arrow, 90 degree upward trajectory. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of like Tom Cruise. Like Magnolia is one of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. And so okay, like... Yeah. So him and that playing himself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, that role is amazing. There's a lot of, you know, um, what's that called? Live, die, repeat tomorrow. No. Oh yeah. yeah, Edge of tomorrow. Edge of tomorrow. That's what it was. Yeah. That one's a good one. I dig his, I dig his performances. I'm, you know, the mission impossible stuff like that more recent stuff. I could, I could do without it. I don't know. I gotta tell you though, I went to a couple of those because of either like group things. I don't remember, you mm-hmm. know, like a team building thing where it's like a safe movie to pick for uh-huh. work. And it wasn't bad. I didn't hate it. <laughs> I was like, this is reasonably entertaining. You oh, know, like, yeah, like Lethal sure. Weapon where for you're sure. like, okay, yeah. I'm here for this. Yeah. I, I think first and foremost, I mean, he is like, one of, if not the greatest movie star of all time, you know, and what that means, the sort of charismatic action star. And that's kind of, and in a way I've almost dismissed him like that because I'm like, he is just like this ball of charisma and I've seen a lot of the late stuff. I mean, I just saw Top Gun Maverick and that's, he's just running that movie as like the most charismatic guy in the world. But I think in my mind that kind of has me dismiss him as a little bit of like, a deep kind of thoughtful actor because that's just not where he's operating. And for most of his movies, I don't think he needs to be, but I think in rain man, I mean, I, at least for me, it was seeing him in a slightly different light. And it was like all of a sudden, like, Oh, this guy actually can show some depth and he can leverage. I think that same action star charisma, you know, fast talking yuppiness, so to speak into like, growth and depth. And, and like we said, you know, it's not like the full kind of, you know, surface level, just like flip around where all of a sudden he's this incredible guy. Like he really, by the end of the film comes off as someone who's still kind of stuck in some of his ways, but is also in the process of learning and is probably going to continue to, you know, reform himself and that, you know, to get that balance where you're kind of like in that in, in between state, like to me that, that, that was born out of his acting. And I thought that was actually surprisingly impressive. Yeah. The only one I can think of is maybe Jerry Maguire where he's mm. kind of doing a similar a similar type of character arc where it's like maybe a true drama the color right. of money is the color of money the pool one with Paul Newman um 
is kind of similar. But then after that, it's just like he just becomes the action star guy. You know what I right. think really messed him up? I think working with Kubrick messed him up. When he did that, oh, Nicole Kidman, Eyes wow. Wide Shut, it was all over after that. Like then it's like full blown Scientology, Tom Cruise, jumping up and down on Oprah's couch, like just. I need to do all my stunts where like I drive a motorcycle out of a helicopter and like he just it went became, crazy after that. It became less about the acting after that. It yeah, was absolutely. what's the craziest stunt and how can I just be in a big movie where, you know, yeah. stuff is kind of moving around me. That, that's well, what all I those late movies are. Lots of, of this um, care, like arc actor arc that we can uh, sure. point to. Yeah. Who's the recent guy that I loved in Parks and Rec. That's awful now. Chris Pratt. Yes. Pratt, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Seattle, uh, Seattle local. I yes. think. Yes, right. right? Yeah. I mean, but he also did things like A Few Good Men. I'm just looking at his IMDb oh, yeah, page sure. now. I am too. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, what's uh, the what's the um, <laughs> Vietnam one? Born on the Fourth of July. Yep. Is that it? Born on the Fourth of July. Yeah. So he did. Quite That's a right bit after of this. After. It's the next year. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think he just really becomes the star of the eighties and nineties. I mean, I mean risky is, business is a big one. Yeah. You know? Risky mm-hmm. business. I mean, he is like the biggest Hollywood icon. Like you mentioned, he really just becomes like a, a Hollywood movie like star. Male Julia Roberts. Yeah. But oh, not, absolutely. not that Julia Roberts isn't likable. Cause I feel like she, sure. I don't know anything about her personal life, but I feel like in terms of their careers. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. I think and everyone, he, yeah. Oh, he did all the schmaltzy rom-coms that are kind mm-hmm. of not great. And he did all the like shitty dude action movies that are not great. It's like the male and female mm-hmm. version of the same thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I personally enjoy the, the, the roles that are like a little bit more unique. Whereas like these action movies, some of the later ones could, it could be any, it could be any of the Chris's. It could be any <laughs> yeah. of the Tom's or whatever. Let's just like, put all the Chris's in there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, Let's I just, just start think... switching them out every, every couple of hours and see if anyone notices. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> what's happening. Well, when are we going to get Tom Cruise in a Marvel movie? I wonder. Yeah. I think, think they're probably filming it now. Yeah. I think he's too big for one. I wonder like he, it's going to be big... like an Angelina Jolie role where he just kind of like shows up in the background and he's mm. like the, the, the father character yeah. or something like, yeah. Kind of just like walks by hey. the voice of like a weird talking dog or something. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, it is interesting his sort of career arc and where he is now. I, I, I always wonder like where people like this are going to go top gun. This new top gun was pretty big. Um, but I think like, Hollywood's different now. And I wonder how much like Hollywood cachet he has, especially with a newer generation. Um, it reminds me of somebody like Paul Newman when I was a kid, where it's like mm-hmm. older people loved the nineties, Paul Newman. And it's like, Oh, Paul Newman's mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, that guy has means nothing to me. Um, but he was such a huge star in a generation before. And so I kind of wonder if Tom Cruise will start, you know, how does he revive his career? Does he start taking chances and make like more Magnolia style movies? He really seemed like the guy that wanted to work with all the big directors. I mean, sure. he's gotten films with all these. We talk shit on Mission Impossible movies, but they're every single one of them is directed by these massive directors. He's worked right. with all of them. And he definitely seemed to be the guy for a while that was choosing these really specific movies. So does he go back to some of that and do some of the more quirky, weird roles? I'd we love to see more it. of that. Yeah. Or does he just continue to crank out um, and turn into like Stallone or somebody like that or Clint Eastwood, where he just kind of like becomes a caricature of himself, like Schwarzenegger, you know, or he just does you know, straight to Netflix versions of Mission Impossible when they decide to replace him with Jeremy Renner. 
Maybe he I does like, like a like, salad dressing like uh, Newman, you know, yeah. Newman's own. That would be amazing. I would love that. He's like, yeah, with every bottle you purchase, 10, 10% goes to Scientology research. Right. <laughs> I like the Stallone comparison you made because, you know, one thing that, about Tom Cruise's career is that he never actually won the Oscar. He was nominated three times. And, you know, oh, you joked yeah. about him winning for this film, but he wasn't even nominated for this one. And I think like the Stallone thing, I just think of, you know, him returning to that sort of Rocky character when they did Creed and like kind of making the Oscar push and probably should have capped his career off with that Oscar win. You know, I know that was a contentious year, but the like, I wonder if Tom Cruise comes back in the next, you know, 10, 15 years and says, let me just go back into the well for one of those. Like, let me do Jerry Maguire, you know, the sequel and really make the case for or for that Rain Man too. What's Dustin Hoffman been doing lately? I mean, let's talk about Dustin Hoffman. He was massive in the 60s and 70s we talked about the graduate after that it was just straight up for him like he made huge movies the graduate midnight cowboy all the president's men kramer versus kramer these are massive 60s and 70s movies and by the 80s he's doing tootsie this movie tootsie won best picture i mean he's everywhere so he to a certain extent is like the big box office draw his name is at the top even though tom cruise is still like the massive sort of next generation you've got the previous generation next generation kind of thing going on then like by the 90s, Dustin Hoffman is just like putting, I mean, just where is he? And he's putting out by, you know, the 2000s, he's doing the Meet the Parents 7. And, yeah. you know, it's kind of like disappeared into bit roles in like Noah Baumbach movies. Um, he did Hook. I mean, famously, he was uh, that's true. Hook. That's true. Right after this, he does mm-hmm. Hook. Um, but I think like, you know, this could be a career resurgence for both of them. They could both be the Stallone in this comparison. Oh, interesting. <laughs> they do Rain Man 2 and uh, they both get nominated for Best Actor. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Uh, how do you guys feel about Dustin Hoffman? Are you fans? You mentioned the, the Jewish side of Dustin Hoffman's life. Um, I don't know yeah. that he's, you know particularly practicing or, or, or sort of like outspoken about it, but he's not, but I think, you know, I think he, you know, he grew up, uh, to Jewish folks, uh, in, in, uh, Los Angeles and things like that. And a lot of his roles are like infused with Jewish uh, things. I think lately there's, there's this, uh, movie that hopefully we're going to review on our podcast, uh, the Meyerowitz stories that he did with Noah Baumbach where, um, you know, he plays the father to like Adam Sandler and, um, and Ben Stiller, things like that. So it's like a part of, and he's done like a bunch of films over the years, I think that speak to his sort of Jewish identity connection. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think like at the time, like you were saying, he did have like quite a few hits um, in the seventies and eighties. I'm a big fan. I think he also has like later career, you know, he did like Kung Fu Panda. So like maybe there's a point where Mm -hmm. people are like, here's a bag of money for three days worth of voiceover (laughs) work. Would you do it? You're like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think everybody's done that. Yeah. Find me someone who hasn't done that, taken that job. (laughs) I'm available. Four great voices right here. (laughs) Exactly. Although from what I've I've read about Dustin Hoffman, and we kind of talked about on Tootsie is that he's like really hard to work with. He's He's kind of a little bit, uh, crazy where he'll just pick fights with people. Mm. He's kind of an asshole. He had a reputation around Hollywood by this point. And I think he really likes things a specific way. He's right. a method actor, which can be kind of annoying for a lot of people. He tends to take over the directing duties and even like script rewriting. Um, there's like some famous stories when he was making things like Marathon Man and Papillon, where he was working with um, 
Lawrence Olivier, there's a very famous quote where Lawrence Olivier, when he found out that he was a method actor and he was going through, you know, Dustin Hoffman's doing all this like stuff to get into character. And Lawrence Olivier is like, it's called acting. Right. Just, That's you know, the job. You, you don't have to, you don't have to do all this. Um, but there was like certain scenes that he refused to, to film. Um, hmm. And they just like ended up having to pull it from the script because they wanted Dustin Hoffman. And so I think by the time we get to the nineties, I think people were just sick of his shit. They're like, Hey man, like you're big, but like there's a new breed of actor and we just don't need you anymore. Um, it's so funny to me because you know, what I love about his acting is that he's just so kind of, he could be so reserved and internal and very like quiet and thoughtful. And, you know, you don't get the impression that he's this sort of loud personality, big, like movie star commanding, but it's so interesting the way his persona, you know, in film is so at contra at so at odds with just the stories that, cause I, I had also heard a lot of these stories about yeah. how he just like completely just drains people and takes over sets and just people, you know, hate him after working with him, which is just, it's so not the impression I've gotten from the few films that I've seen him act in. No, I never would have guessed that. Yeah. We had a guest, I don't remember who it was, but we were talking about Tom Cruise. Nope, sorry, Tom Hanks, the other one. (laughs) That um, So Kevin really doesn't like Tom Hanks. And this guest, she really liked Tom Hanks. And we had a conversation about actors that are not attractive that somehow you think are attractive. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Dustin Hoffman- That was Eva Walker, yeah. She had a huge crush on Tom Hanks. It was Eva Walker, that's who (laughs) it was. She loved Tom Hanks. (laughs) Like yeah. was like physically attracted to Tom Hanks, and I was like, ah, really? Like, are there people that you just like? It's I'm you just, and Rita Wilson. <laughs> I don't know. He just like I wouldn't have thought that he was a super diva. He's very. I think maybe it's that person persona that he plays that is more like laid back, and maybe it's because I've seen The Graduate a lot of times. But I feel yeah. like there's something attractive about him. Yeah, about absolutely. Dustin I mean, we talked about Hanks. The Graduate. Oh, when he's okay. not shirtless. He looks very Dustin attractive. Hoffman. Tom Hanks. I don't get it. <laughs> No, Dustin Hoffman, like, I mean, I think that was a story of his early career. He struggled for a long time. He didn't have the look. It's crazy. I was looking up like. Which is weird because he's very attractive. Life magazine after after the graduate came out, Life Magazine said, if Hoffman's face were his fortune, he'd be committed to a life of poverty. Like constantly everyone was calling him ugly. And I think it's just because he wasn't Paul Newman. Like he wasn't blue eyed blonde hair. And you got to imagine like. Read as not Aryan this time, enough. There is this change, maybe this shift in the '60s where we start getting people like De Niro, or, uh, De Niro, but uh, maybe more to a greater extent, Pacino. These actors who like Hollywood sort of categorizes as like too ethnic looking. Mm, interesting. He, these big Hollywood stars. I think on top of that, he's pretty short. Although Hollywood has found a way around that in the past. Um, yeah. So is Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think they both might be shorter than that. That scene where they're both walking. It's like they're sort of like head to head. You know. <laughs> yeah. <in that> long <laughs> shot. They're both walking on like a pedestal podium. Like, <laughs> exactly. To keep them right. above everyone else. <laughs> they yes. like only hire short people. Yeah. To be you're like, extra. it's funny we never see their feet. <laughs> But I think like Hollywood decided that, you know, he just wasn't attractive enough and he struggled for a really long time. And I think the graduate was just this lucky, massive break for him that really opened up a lot of doors. And he kind of was able to find roles for himself. And he he worked really, really hard to find different kinds of roles because what he's doing in the graduate is so different from Midnight Cowboy. Um, And then he's doing little big man, which is like a favorite of mine, a kind of Western where he's playing a bunch of different characters. Um, So he's really trying to show his range every time he was taking a movie. Um, And I think that it really showed off the fact that he is one of those true actors that can kind of be anyone, so to speak. Right. It kind of reminds me like weirdly of like um, Robert Pattinson or like uh, Daniel Mm -hmm. Radcliffe. 
who like after, I mean, I know like Dustin Hoffman wasn't in a Harry Potter or Twilight movie of his time, but <laughs> yeah. like sort of, they, they sort of have like the reverse of who, all these people we were talking about who are like now doing popcorn stuff towards the later part of their career. Whereas like Daniel Radcliffe and, and Robert Pattinson who started out doing popcorn movies are now choosing like Weird Al biopics and like, yeah, totally. you know, uh, what is it? Swiss army, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. All these like farting corpse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like very bizarre movies, like working with weird art, artistic directors, but now they have sort of their pick of whatever. And I feel like Hoffman sort of started out doing, you know, uh, you know, Lenny, which is another interesting movie, oh, right. uh, Bob Fosse movie kind of and Kramer versus Kramer. But like every other movie I'm looking at his IMDb, I'm like, wow, like he played in Dick, he played a Dick Tracy also, mm-hmm. like just a lot of different roles. And I think, you know, having that sort of not being able to be pegged down as like one particular type of actor sort of allows you to kind of be a chameleon. And well, when I think also if yeah. like Hollywood's constantly telling you, you're not attractive enough to be a movie star, then right. it's like, Hey man, like it's acting. I don't have to be attractive. Like I'm here to act. Whereas somebody like Tom Cruise is like, he's just beautiful. Like put him in a film and people will go see it. He doesn't even need to be a great performance. Um, you know, not that Tom Cruise is not a great actor, but like, you know what I mean? Like there's tons of careers that are built on faces um, for actors that just aren't that great um, and actresses. Um, and, and yet some of these people, I think like, you know, Dustin Hoffman maybe felt like he had a chip on his shoulder and he had something to prove. I think the method acting really helped him. It was new at the time and he was able to like really get into character. I think method acting is um, nowadays is kind of like laughed upon and it's sort of like an annoying thing. And it's like a meme that people talk about, about people like Jared Leto who, you know, do a 10 second Joker film and end up like ruining everyone's lives because they have to get into character. Um, but I think at the time it was sort of new and interesting and it really helped him sort of like unlock things that he was able to um, display that other people, other people weren't willing to go that far or, or whatever you, you might want to say. Um, but anyways, one of the great, one of the great actors for sure. I think um, you know, hopefully he can get back in there and do something a little more interesting. Um, I have a couple of other questions and things I wanted to talk about. First of all, the car, are you guys car guys? Do you care about this car? I have a car and I <laughs> no, but I did appreciate the Buick and sort of like the, 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 you know, I like old cars. Yeah. And, it's yeah. cool. It's a cool idea and it really helps sell the sort of road trip idea behind it, you know, cause this ostensibly is a road trip movie. And so it's like, you gotta have the right car for it. We talked oh, about yeah. Thelma and Louise. You gotta have this, the, the right car for a road trip movie. Um, I don't particularly care about cars either. Um, but I did think it was interesting that after the movie finished, uh, Dustin Hoffman bought the car. Oh, he did. And he restored it and he kept it like in a garage for like 40 years and he sold it this year, 2022 for $335,000. Which did you agree that there was two? Did you say that? Sorry. There was, there was two. You're right. And, and like uh Barry Levinson bought one because I think they had to rig one to like hold the camera and then they use one as like a prop car, mm. but it's such a, like, I, I just love that you have this like really nice old classic car that's like from his past. And now his like present is these like luxury Ferrari Lamborghini mm. kind of like yeah. American versus Italian. I don't know if there's something. Yeah, I thought it was there, really but, nice. That is yeah. an interesting parallel. I didn't even think about the idea that we start off, the, the film starts off with these Lamborghinis yeah. being dropped down, mm-hmm. which is like that car to me was like the most iconic car of my childhood. Like I remember yeah. having toys of that. There sure. was like fruit snacks of that. That, that specific <laughs> car shape was like, so important. Is it a like, Countach? Am I getting that sounds it right? right? Yeah. I don't know. 
I'll give it to you. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I'm a girl, and in the 90s, girls didn't like cars. That's right. <laughs> no, that's, that's right. Yeah, the Lamborghini yeah. Countach. Yeah, yeah. I, so I definitely think there's something. That, that, what's that? I was going to say just with the car, I, I think that there's something going on with his past where, you know, there's this big threat. His father won't let him ever drive the car. And that's, you know, yeah. the biggest point of their rift. So him kind of going into an industry where he gets to control and move around cars is like, oh, I mean, 200%. Not interesting. yeah, yeah. Like not, not the for three years. Years. Dad. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If he went to therapy for three years, that's a connection he would make. Yeah. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Oh, like his whole road. character is very yes. reactionary to kind of the past and being separated sure. from his mother and from his family and like always looking for yep. that. And, you know, that that's all I think. And I'll, I'll just use that as the point to make that. I think the plotting in this movie is like very tight. You know, you were talking about like the car and just like the way that like each beat of the movie kind of progresses and comes back around and like how they get to, you know, Vegas, which was the one scene that I did know about before I watched the movie. And I was just kind of waiting for them to get there and just the way it unfolds. Like it's just a very tight story. Like it really it, nothing, none of it felt forced. Sure. Yeah. I, the, the road trip setup, I think definitely allows for that and allows like all these stops on the road and like different set pieces for them to like, Oh, here's a, like another conflict. We have to stay at a hotel, but it's raining and, and, uh, and oh, we have to watch Wapners. We have to like barge into this woman's house and like, you know, you know what? That puts them kind of on the same level because they're right. both out of their element. Yeah. It's not in anyone's home territory. Totally. I don't and know so if Charlie's ever out of his element. Well, like when he goes to knock is. on the, the barn door, he's like, all right, let me do the talking. Here we go. He doesn't <laughs> know how to take hair. care of his yeah. brother. Mode. He keeps like fumbling, trying to care for his brother. Yeah. But it's nice to see that, like yeah. for him to like have these missteps only towards the end to like have another opportunity to like, you know, by the time like the smoke alarm goes off at the end and he's trying to make Eggo waffles, he's like on it. He's not annoyed. He's just like, all right, I got to get to it. Like got to knock off mm -hmm. this uh, smoke alarm, got to get him his waffles and his juice and whatever. Um, but it does, you know, it's, it's like you said, Harry, it's not a forced way to, to, to progress the story along, but it does offer a lot of opportunity to showcase the growth. And you know what this reminded me of raising kids, like this is exactly it's what it's like to have a child, like a yeah. toddler where yeah. they're just like, their needs need to be met and you can't be mad at them for it because they're sort of, and you know, to a certain extent, I think like the understanding of autism is, is that there's a developmental delay. And so like in a lot of ways, they are childlike in the way that they perceive the world. And so like, you know, clearly the parallel was obviously already there, but just like reminded me so much of dealings with my kids where it's like, you can't leave them alone at all for any amount of time. They're constantly needing attention. They're just like super picky about everything all the time. They're always, they always have these needs and there isn't the same like kind of like understanding for your needs. Right. And so it just really, really made me think about being a parent and sort of stressed me out to a certain extent. Like, <laughs> Oh my God, this is what my day is like every single day. <laughs> I was thinking about that too, because my son is eight months old and he like wants to stand, but physically can't. And so he's constantly clawing at me. And I always am like thinking about how he's an accidental asshole. Like, <laughs> yeah. he, like, pushes into my throat to where I can't breathe all the time. Rain man like too, accidental asshole. But it is kind of like that. Like they just don't know. And so right. it's like, you want to get frustrated, but you keep telling yourself like, okay, he's just a baby. It's a, he's being an accidental asshole <laughs> and it's not about me. Um, and that's totally what it is. Is like, he's not trying to be an asshole. He's being accidentally an asshole. It's not an intentional thing. He's just like existing in the world. And that's how it happens to turn out to Tom Cruise, you know?
That yeah. that reminds me of the scene when they're sort of in the phone booth and he's kind of and he's farting in there and like yeah. that. Fart, and it's exactly like <laughs> that's all that's happening. Like you, you kind of like you understand why, you know, Charlie is so yeah. upset, but also you can't really blame Raymond. Like, no, it came out accidental. <laughs> yeah. But just all the stuff with like the fish sticks. Oh, no, it's got to be got to be eight fish sticks. Only have four here. It's like that is a sentence that I have heard in my actual oh, yeah. life. <laughs> And I knew what to do from watching this movie. I just chop him in half. And they have twice as many. <laughs> Except there he go. made the mistake of showing him what he was doing. What you got to do is you gotta pull the plate away so they don't know, chop them, and then give them the plate back. There, here we go. Here's eight. Wow, it's all brand new. <laughs> I literally did that this evening where I was like giving my daughter some yogurt and like often... I'll, uh, you know, open the yogurt and I'll give her the whole one and then I'll end up with like half uneaten. Mm -hmm. So I like poured half into another container, gave her half the yogurt first, and then she finished it. And then I gave her more. I thought that was a pretty cool, uh, pretty slick move of me over here. Three dad hats right here. (laughs) I just pat myself on the back for that. (laughs) I love it. Since you can't, you know, but. Come to us for your parenting advice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, definitely, uh, you know, I think it is a realistic portrayal of caregiving. And I, I think that sort of sort of to sum up everything we we're talking about, I think that that is what this film is about, which might not, you know, to Harry, to kind of your point of like knowing a lot about the film, I got to imagine that that's not the stuff that's getting out into the sort of like public consciousness. And then we watch it. That's the stuff that you kind of like are taken away with like, wow, OK, I'm understanding Tom Cruise's character arc and sort of like how difficult it is to be a caregiver. Because I think that's the point of the doctor character as well. Is the doctor isn't like, he's not like, hey, we need this money for the hospital. He's like, you don't understand what you're trying to get into. Like, I get that you hated your dad. I get that you just found out you had a brother. But like, this is hard. Like, he has needs that you might... And it's not about like, you can't meet his needs. It's that his needs are constant and that you might not have the time. And I think that's a lot about what being a parent is as well. Well, and they're unchanging because at some point your kids will be able to care for themselves. Mm -hmm. But it's like if he were to get custody or um, what is it? uh, Conservatorship over his brother, he would need to care for him for what? 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Full time care. That's a, a lot of people that are not professional caregivers are not equipped to do that. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting. It's draining. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, uh, yeah, it's tough. And I, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, it's like, uh, it's a, it's a hard thing. And I think, uh, it's, it's interesting too. I, I thought there's no like real villain in this movie, right? You know, like no, most, there's not, yeah. probably the EPA. I mean, <laughs> oh, true. <laughs> Just, Just let him have of... his cars. Come on. He needs the money, <laughs> but it's like, it's nice that like the, the, institute where where he's staying where raymond is staying like there's no like evil doctor who's gonna like take his millions of dollars and like run away to cabo Mm -hmm. or whatever you know they're all looking after raymond and what's best in his best interest i almost feel like charlie is is sort of the the villain at the beginning Mm -hmm. but then he sort of turns to this more sympathetic character but it is there is conflict even without being like a without there being like a clear enemy in this film which Mm -hmm. is i thought was kind of a cool cool move yeah that is a good point i didn't think about that and this whole conversation is even making me sympathetic to their father who like in the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. I mean, he's like, you know, he's like the real jerk in the movie and you you can tell he never showed love to Charlie and he's awful, but you kind of get the sense that like, you know, after their mother died, when, you know, they had the sort of accident with the hot water, right? Cause we, we kind of learned that that's why, you know, Raymond was kind of rehomed. 
and you get the sense that he really was just being very protective over Charlie. And I'm sure that doesn't justify all of the you know absence he did. And we don't we don't get enough of the characterization for me to really say any of this. I'm kind of just, you know, reading all this into the few lines we get about the father. But there is some sympathy for, you know, him trying to protect his you know children and just being dealt, you know, a very difficult hand, you know, losing his wife, having a son who's, you know, autistic like this and just. You know, again, a little bit of sympathy. I'm not sure. It still seems like he was a very distant father. And it's very it's really just sad on both sides that they kind of really don't have a relationship for the last, you know, 20 years of their of, of the father's life. But yeah. you know, at least at least you're getting some sympathy from me just because this is a difficult situation. I mean, though, Tom, like Tom Cruise states, like he wouldn't let me drive the car. So I left. I'm like, <sighs> And you didn't talk to him for like whatever 20 years. I'm like, ah, this that doesn't seem like justified, you know? So it's like maybe the father wasn't back. Maybe it's you, Charlie. It's like, like the father his car. Right. The way right. the father yeah. handles it, right? He like doesn't pay his bail and makes him sleep in jail. Like yeah. it's definitely yeah. tough love. It's very harsh. But sure. also I like I agree with you. You know, you stole the car. He didn't want you to get into like an accident. He cared about the car. Like yeah. I'm I'm kind of on both sides right now. Feels like a dad move in what time would that have been? The 70s or something? You'd be like, well, he's a man. Let him sleep it out in jail. Like, it feels like just tough it up kind of move. I don't know. Not that it's okay, but I agree with you. I kind of do feel for the dad. What what do these parents look like? I was thinking about this. Like, what do the the mom and dad look like that they produce (laughs) Dustin Hoffman and a Tom Cruise? Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting yeah. looking folks. Well, they were probably both short, right? We can include that. <laughs> Good call. Good call. Well played. <laughs> I love that. All right, you guys. We've been talking about it to death. Uh, does anyone have any last minute thoughts before we kind of wrap it up and rate it? Oh, I actually do have one last thought. Um, one of the kind of like key pivotal scenes in the movie is they're supposed to fly back and then uh raymond says like i I can't can't go on a flight he starts like listing off all the crash statistics for all the airplanes Mm -hmm. first of all i just want to say like how amazing flying the 80s would have been when like you just show up at the airport and you just pick an airline that they all go to all of the cities (laughs) where nowadays you're like please god please somebody is flying to seattle oh my god they're flying to seattle and then it's like four in the morning you're like well that's the only flight i guess i'm taking it it's a thousand dollars sure take my money and you're gonna squeeze me into a can but anyways um he was accurate. Qantas Airlines has not had a crash of a commercial still. flight. Not only that, but wow. the record is sterling to this day. Qantas? Crash. Yeah. So if you're flying to Australia, they got you covered. Um, and the airlines, when they would show this movie, Rain Man, on the flight, they actually edited out that scene because they didn't want people sitting in the seat being like, but I'm on a Delta flight. <laughs> right, exactly. And so they edited out the only airline that did not edit out, Qantas. Qantas. Course, they were like, hey, just FYI, just want to let you know, no crashes. Just ask Rain Man. Nice. Amazing. Love that. Oh, wait. And second sort of like final thought was we recently talked about Goodwill Hunting and I'm so surprised after watching this movie that they didn't do the card counting thing in Goodwill Hunting. You think that like a bunch of Boston Southie shitheads would have been like, we definitely need to go to Vegas and like, uh-huh. or yeah. I guess Atlantic City and right. like count cards because this Could guy's like a mathematical that? genius. It's about like memorization guy, about like what's come out of the deck already. And then you start sort of yeah. like memorizing what's left. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a photographic memory thing and not a math thing, but maybe it is a math. But thing. remember, that's like what he has. He, we, we talked about this in a good while hunting. Remember he's like, Oh, you read this oh, book on page does. 86. Yeah. Okay. All right. Maybe, yep. maybe that's rounders, you know, maybe like rounders. <laughs> is actually I was going to say rounders must be the sequel, the spiritual yeah. sequel to good while hunting and rain man. <laughs> 
All right, guys. Um, here on the Debbie Film Society, we do not believe on traditional rating systems because you know one man's thumbs up is another man's thumbs down. Opinions are subjective, is what I'm trying to say. So we kind of make it up. So the film rating for today, the film Rain Man from the year 1988. Let's rate it. Uh, we just mentioned the card counting. So my rating system is this: one for bad, two for good. How are you guys gonna rate it? One for bad or two for good? Uh, let's start with uh, let's start with Emily. Two for good. Two for good. I really, yeah, because I'd watch it again. I don't watch a lot of things twice, so I'm going (laughs) two for good, except for Seinfeld, and it's not twice. It's like three hundred (laughs) times. So two for good is really okay. I think good on you. I was like, you have to hold out on that. Talk about Jews on film, though. I know. I feel like I'm a bad Jew. (laughs) No, you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah. But it's like required reading at this point. But I've seen enough Seinfeld to make up for it. So let's just, you know. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Send the questions my way. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate (laughs) that. Could you just, uh, what's the soup Nazi? Yeah. (laughs) You're like, let me call Emily. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Daniel, one for bad or two for good. I'm going two for good. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed this movie and like, you know, thinking about the time and contextualizing a lot of it. And, the, and you know, even if there was some initial backlash eventually to the film, like the way that the autism was portrayed as this like superpower, or this magical ability to count toothpicks and cards and all that kind of stuff. I think, you know, you're talking about like the donations that were made in, for autism awareness and things like that. Overall, I thought it was like a terrific performance by everyone involved. It's just like, a, it's a good movie. It's not too sweet. I'm going to for good. Yeah. All right, Harry, two, one, which one? Two for good, for sure. Like I said, I, I had a very, you know, fixed expectation for what this movie would be before I saw it. And even while I was watching it, was just kind of waiting for the turn and just like the depth, the nuance, the way that they kind of handle this question of like Charlie's growth. I just, you know, everything I've said over the last hour plus, like definitely a two. <laughs> Oof, I got a swallow. <clears throat> Sorry. I had to clear my throat. I am choked up for how much I love this movie. <laughs> I'm also going to go two for good. Of course, definitely going to go two for good. Me and my sister watch this movie all the time as kids. And we used to do Rayman impressions all the time. All the time. We used to always say, of course, definitely time for Wapner. Of course, three minutes of Wapner. Uh, Kmart sucks. We used to say that a lot. Uh, we definitely used to say all of the quotes from this movie. And so I love it. It's a big part of my childhood. I feel like this is one of those movies that was on TV a lot. Um, it was kind of like part of the, you know that classic tv lineup that you it's, just turn on a random channel i, know, I was on. watching seinfeld when i was like nine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right it's a pretty clean movie i mean there's that sort yeah. of like alluded to sex scene but yeah, there's no nudity right. yeah you know that is fairly... an amazing sex scene though where he's like oh, <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> 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 oh man don't mind him. He's just answering a question from an hour ago. <laughs> oh, man, it's great. Okay. Um, now that we've rated it, we've talked about it. Let's do some recommendations for those that just saw Rain Man for the first time, like Harry, or I've seen it a million times like me. What do you guys recommend that they check out next? Daniel, do you want to go first since you kind of already tipped your hand? Well, I could go with a different recommendation, but I, I mean, I'll, let's I'll do plug, both. I'll, okay. So I'll plug remind us of the one and then do a new one. Uh, so it's a show on Amazon called As We See It, and it's uh, just a story about three uh, three people who have autism and live in like a group home in Los Angeles and just sort of their day-to-day, you know, one of them works at a startup and he gets like fired like right away. And then another one, uh, you know, is uh, he just, his, he's at home and then another person, uh, she works at like a fast food restaurant. So I, you know, it's, it's one season, it's pretty low stakes commitment. Uh, one of the stars 
is Rick Glassman. He has like a really funny podcast that I enjoy called Take Your Shoes Off. Hmm. And he talks about a lot about the making of the show on his podcast. And, you know, he was recently diagnosed with autism, like later in life. And he this was like a recent discovery. Uh, so kind of hearing his journey on the podcast and then kind of like watching the show, you know, it's kind of like a nice pairing. So, so I think was that's it sort it of scripted like scripted or reality. Oh no, it's a it's a scripted show. Oh okay, uh, yeah, and it's kind of I would feel like it's sort of the next evolution of of a Rain Man kind of situation, where it's sure. like rather than see like an a accomplished actor portray someone with autism, these are like actually uh, you know people who are on the spectrum playing people on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like authentic casting. So I'd recommend that one. Yeah. Cool. And then did you have another one for us? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Lenny is a, is a fun one. I'm a big fan of like stand-up comedy and things like that. And so this was a movie, uh, from 1974 directed by Bob Fosse where, um, Dustin Hoffman played the comedian Lenny Bruce, uh, mm. a member of the tribe, a Jew, uh, mm. who, you know, had a kind of very edgy comedian. He was portrayed in like Miss Maisel as this, like, uh, mm. you know, he had a role in there or his he was, his character was portrayed in Miss Maisel, but, uh, you know, Lenny, the movie is like this sort of black and white film, but it's an interesting, uh, Dustin Hoffman performance. So those will be my recommendations. Sorry for double dipping. No, no, that's okay. Yeah, I've never okay. seen it. And I've, I've been interested in watching it and like the Dustin Hoffman's greatest hits are so massive that it kind of gets buried. Um, you know, any other actor that would have probably been in their top two, um, so I've never actually seen it before. I know that film in particular had a very troubled history, sort of like its creation yeah. and like really drained Bob Fosse. Um, but cool. I'll check it out. All right, Harry, what's your recommendation? So I'm going to go with the rehearsal, the, uh, the new HBO show that we were talking oh, about earlier, Emily. And yeah. I'm partly recommending it because you brought it up and made a connection. And this is just an excuse for me to recommend what I thought was just <laughs> such a fascinating show and experiment. But yeah. The more I thought about it, the more it really lines up. I mean, first of all, and this this will make sense to someone who's seen the show or for everyone who's listening to this, who hopefully checks it out. But the show's all about method acting, right? That's a huge mm -hmm. part of it. And we were talking about Dustin Hoffman, you know, and going through that method acting and the kind of toll that, you know, what that sort of taxes out of the people around you. But the show is actually also about like custody and what it means to raise kids and learning what it means to take care of someone. And just even just the dynamics of like, a lot of a big part of Nathan's character and it's, it's a, you know, a complicated show because it's run by this guy, Nathan Fielder, and he's both playing him like a character version of himself, but also kind of himself. And, you know, he struggles with working through emotions and connecting with other people and like trying, he, he does these rehearsals to create connection. And I'm not going to go through the whole show because it's very complicated and watching it will do you know yeah. much more than I can explain. But I, I actually found a couple of connections to this movie and, you know, hopefully people will be motivated to check it out because it, it's a great show. Nice. Emily did text me about it the other day and she was like, you got to watch this show. So, I was like, I don't know how to explain this. Too. I think it's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's impossible to explain whatever you think it is, whatever you think it is based on what I just yeah. said. Like it's none of that. Unless and you've seen that. Nathan for you. And then I feel like you kind of have an idea. You get like not a start. Even. It's like an entry yeah. point. Exactly. Yeah. But this show Very is weird. wild. Uh, Emily, what's your recommendation? Okay, I'm going to recommend another critically acclaimed film. Actually, um, came out a week before Rain Man, Ooh. so maybe inspired a little bit about two brothers who didn't know that the other existed. It's called Twins. Ooh, <laughs> nice. It stars Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. It has like it's in the 40s on Rotten Tomatoes, but I really love it. Um, <laughs> it's definitely questionable. Uh, this storyline is not great but um 
basically Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger are twin brothers. There is this genetic experiment where they try to make a super baby with like five different male or men semen. And one of the babies is Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then there's this like twin that's created, but doesn't get the full DNA somehow, which feels really offensive, but it's Danny DeVito and he got paid for this movie. So I'm thinking he was okay with it. Um, (laughs) They don't know that the other exists. The mom doesn't know that the twins survived. It's fantastic. It's basically Rain Man, but a week earlier, it made $216 million. Oh, see, so it's right on the tails of Rain Man. They wear huge movie. Hawaiian shirts. It's incredible. There's a lot of khaki. You're going to want to watch it. I'm going to recommend twins. Good suits on the poster of that. And then you have the suits in Rain Man. I mean, there's that connection. That's it. Yes, you're right. right. It's basically the same movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel like... uh, at least it's a good interpretation of like what was pop culture movies in the eighties. Like what was a typical Hollywood movie in 88 and you compare that to rain man. I think it would only sort of elevate how great rain man really is. Yeah. yeah, For real. You know, (laughs) but it's also, you know, when you like, you're like, this is horrible, but I love it. Yeah. 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 Totally. (laughs) Cool. Uh, My recommendation is kind of similar. It came out the year after rain man and it's called the wizard. In 1989, it stars Fred Savage from uh, what's the show that he was on? The Wonder Years. The Wonder Wonder Years. Years. Fred Savage from The Wonder Years. It has Jenny Lewis from Indie Darling, Jenny Lewis, singer songwriter, uh, Rilo Kiley, and Christian Slater. And uh, it's about like Fred Savage's brother is. So like he has like I think what would be described as PTSD like their sister died I think she drowned or something and so like his younger brother kind of like goes into a mute mode and sort of is ex- displaying characteristics I would say of autistic savant and seems to have like this crazy savant magical ability at playing Nintendo and so Fred Savage takes him on this like journey across America to compete in, I think it's Las Vegas in like this giant Nintendo champ world championship. And it's kind of amazing and kind of a great interpretation of like sort of cult films from the eighties and eighties pop culture, like true eighties pop culture, but also like maybe the earliest example of a rain man derivation or like copycat because it's made the next year um but it's rainman for kids and i also loved this movie and watched it a ton when i was a kid you know um it was the hmm. um first uh world premiere of super mario brothers 3 it kind of like was built just to, they were like okay we got this game coming out it's gonna be the biggest game in the world we need to make a movie to like promote it or as if nobody was gonna buy a mario game but whatever is I wanted a, a power glove so badly. After yes, that. the power glove was very like big oh. in it, where they're like, meet this asshole kid who's going to defeat them because he's got the power glove. But it's like, I'm sorry, did you not realize that my brother is an autistic savant? <laughs> is that just Tommy, but with video games? Tommy. Oh, good. From the who? Yeah. Because no, he's I, a right. pinball wizard. Yeah, yeah, totally. Ah. So, like, the guy that made it was like, I want to make Tommy, but for a new generation. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because yeah. he was like, we need to promote this I was this like, I've seen this, but like, Roger Daltrey. We, here's how, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. The deaf, dumb, and blind kid sure plays a mean Super Mario Bros. 3. Spoiler alert, he wins. So it's definitely that feel-good 80s schmaltz. Right, right. But man, it's for kids, and it was fun, and Fred Savage is in it. So, you know. Anyways, do it up.
the wizard 1989 uh you guys this was awesome thank you so much this was a really fun episode and discussion about thank really you for having us movie. yeah yeah it was so great. honored um will you guys tell us about your podcast tell the listeners about what you got coming up Sure. Uh, yeah, we, uh, so our podcast is called Jews on Film. I host it with my co-host here, Harry. Um, recent episodes have included uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, David Mamet's Homicide, Coen Brothers' A Serious Man, but we've also done things like Uncut Gems, some of the classics like Yentl, um, uh, Blazing Saddles, Frisco Kid, things like that. And so- done, uh, What was the movie that we, what was the Babs movie we talked about, Emily? Where, uh, where she's like it was the fanny bryce one in the jewish oh funny girl Fun, yep. funny girl, funny girl. Yeah. have you done funny girl i remembered fanny oh, bryce but recommend. i couldn't remember funny girl yes it was great <laughs> it's like there were a lot of movies from that time period where they're like it'll be four hours long and we'll show every minute of her life yeah and you're totally, like this yeah. is aggressive and also it's, it's like good. barbara streisand's in it well, of course, we have to make sure that everyone knows she's Jewish. Otherwise, they'll be like, why is she in this movie? Right. It's very like, yeah, on the nose and kind of on the nose, so to speak. Uh, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. That's no, all good. <laughs> you want to? Okay. I was just going to say, yeah, uh, I think, uh, you know, typically we look at a film. Uh, sometimes they're very explicitly Jewish, like a funny girl or a Yentl, things like that. Sometimes they're less so like with this clockwork orange episode, uh, we talked to a professor, uh, a film professor in, in, in Wales who has devoted his, his later, you know, his career now to, to discussing like Kubrick and, and, you know, Kubrick was Jewish and some of his films are explicitly I don't know. I mean, none of them are explicitly Jewish, but like we kind of like d dig deep and find some of the aspects of of these films that are, you know, that have some Jewish elements. And sometimes we stretch quite a bit to make those things happen. But, you know, it's a it's a fun journey. Awesome. H Harry, anything to add? Did I miss anything? No, you pretty much got it. The exercises, <laughs> it's just a fun podcast we do. We, we do, like Daniel said, a movie of the week, and we just unpack and rate the film on its Jewishness. You know, we, we don't make up a new <laughs> nice. rating system each week. We have a fixed one. We rate sort of Jewish stars, talk about the content crew, you know, cast themes and all that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, we just have fun with it. Some of them are uh, real stretches, and some of them are, you know, explicitly Jewish movies. And we're open to suggestions. If anyone, I don't know if you guys take like, uh, if you guys get mail or anything and could just forward us suggestions yeah, that love, any of your, yeah, your fans sure. might have. Send, send, send in your top five Jewish films. Or, exactly. or films that you, uh, like you mentioned, uh, here's an interesting one that I think you guys might dig, although it's a tough watch. One of our most popular episodes that we talked about was the Holy mountain, which is like this like nut job movie by this guy, Alejandro Yurowski and it's sure. like this art film. Um, yeah, but there's yeah, like yeah. a lot of religious iconography throughout the film, but I think like, uh, like the, there's a lot of like specifically Jewish iconography and like, um, a lot of it's like, you know, deep mysticism and stuff that he he's sort of diving into, but could be interesting. And also add it to the list. I believe his parents were survivors oh, and he's to. like, he's got an interesting relationship with Judaism, but I would definitely check out like, uh, I listened to a podcast about Topo, his other movie. Oh, and like, after like, I, after like uh, hearing that, I'm like, oh, I definitely want to watch him, one of his movies. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really liked Holy Mountain. There's a lot of penises in it, so I'm just throwing <laughs> that out there. But it's good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. It's tough to watch. It's tough to understand. But there's, uh, it's interesting. It's super interesting. Yodorowsky is a super interesting figure in sort of like art house filmmaking. 
Anyways, my suggestion, uh, if you got suggestions, you can send them to either them or us, debbiefilmsite at gmail.com, and we'll forward them on. So check it out. Uh, we'll drop a link in the show notes so people can check it out. Choose on film. Uh, go and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks. Thank you again, you guys. This was great. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. This podcast started out as a radio show. Emily and I were DJs in Chicago. We played punk and heavy metal. Our show was called deadbeat that's why it's deadbeat film society mm. so it's sort of like a um a nod to our roots i like to recommend a song the song i'm going to recommend today is uh by a very famous band you may have heard of called black flag and the song is called nervous breakdown um because that's kind of like what rayman is having constantly throughout this film and i was having when i was reminiscing about having to do with my children so go listen to black flag nervous breakdown it's uh maybe controversially my favorite vocalist of the black flag lineup keith morris um, um, but anyways, uh, a good a good punk hardcore classic from the early 70s. Um, hey, along with that list of films that you think that they should rate, why don't you send us a film that you recommend that we talk about next on this podcast? You can email at debbiefilmsocietygmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at dbfilmsociety and slide it into the DMs on Twitter. Instagram at Debbie Film Society. Um, if you don't want to follow us on social media, I get it. It's not a big deal, but please subscribe to the podcast and iTunes or Spotify or whatever. It's four words, Dead Beat Film Society. We've got new episodes coming out every two weeks. You're not going to want to miss it because we've got a bunch of great films coming out. Um, that's it for today's meeting of the Dead Beat Film Society. Until next time, goodbye.